Hello and welcome to the podcast for the May issue of The Lancet Global Health. I'm Richard Lane and this month we're focusing on an article in the May issue and this concerns post-traumatic stress disorder but specifically to do with the current violence in a population in Timor-Leste and I'm delighted to be joined on the line by one of the authors of this research paper and that is Professor Derek Silov from the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. Professor Silov, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Global Health. Can I just start off by asking you to, for context really, just to describe the conflict that's been going on over some period of time in uh, Timor-Leste, which used to be known as East Timor. East Timor basically has been through you know, many decades of conflict. It's, as you know, a small island to the north of Australia, and it was invaded and occupied by Indonesia for 24 years, from uh, 1975 to 1999. And that was a period of low-grade armed struggle in which the resistance movement, which favoured independence, essentially uh, opposed the Indonesian invasion. The result was uh, extraordinary levels of human rights violations, torture, murder, extrajudicial abuse of, of people, incarceration, mass displacement of populations and so on, to the extent that it is estimated that about a quarter of the population of Timor-Leste died during that period from one or another factor related to the conflict. In 1999, after a referendum on independence, there was a humanitarian emergency in which militia supported by the Indonesian military essentially ransacked the whole country, burnt down just about all the buildings, displaced the whole population. So that was a complete disaster and the United Nations then intervened, restored peace, and East Timor gained its independence in 2002, and as Timor-Leste, as you, as you mentioned. Unfortunately, in 2006-07, there was a further uh, episode of violence, this time instigated by opposing factions within the country itself, and that led to further human rights violations, killings, displacement, burning of property, and so on. So it had a kind of a, a second whammy, which uh, we were particularly interested in, in our longitudinal study, which, which we've uh, published. Give us the specific uh, aims and objectives of the study, and then go on and tell us how you were actually able to do it from a methodological point of view. The first phase of the study was done in 2004. So that was uh, two years after independence during a period of relative peace. And we selected two villages in East Timor, an urban and rural village, which were more or less representative of the country as a whole. Our key aim at that time was really to document the mental health needs of the population in a country where prior to that there'd been no mental health services at all. In other words, uh, if someone had a mental disorder, there was just simply no official formal treatment. They'd go to traditional healers, but there was no treatment whatsoever. So our primary aim was to establish the epidemiology of mental disorders to guide service developments. The surprise about that study was that we got rather low rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression and anxiety for a country that had been through such a prolonged period of conflict and violence. I mean, if you compared it to countries elsewhere, Congo, um, Afghanistan, range of other post-conflict countries, the rates of PTSD, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, which we found, which was about 2.5%, were way below what you'd expect for a population of this type. 
So we had to kind of scratch our heads and wonder what this was all about. I mean, why were we getting these low rates in a country that had been through so much conflict? We could only speculate that it actually gaining independence and the hope generated for the future and the security established by the United Nations, that all these factors actually had a global effect on the population and was, in a sense, a healing experience in itself. But this left us you know, somewhat perplexed as to why we were getting these low rates. Then, I mean, obviously, it wasn't something we planned, but the conflict arose again in 2006-07. And so it made sense to follow up the same population a few years later in 2010 to see what the changes were in their basic mental health indices. We expected you know, a modest increase in rates of mental disorder as a result of the conflict. The conflict was not of the scale that had occurred in, during the Indonesian times. Uh, it was severe enough, but certainly not uh, not anywhere near the level of persecution that had been suffered previously. And to our surprise, we found a huge ex- escalation in rates of mental disorder at that point. So PTSD went up sevenfold, depression, anxiety went up threefold. I mean, these are huge increases in the rates of disorder over this period of time. And that led us to, you know, believe that, and in fact, the data broadly supports this, is that you know, the, the sense of injustice, the sense of uh, outrage, the sense of loss of security and hope were all major factors in generating this huge escalation in mental disorder following this uh, period of conflict. Interesting findings there. Was there anything unexpected? I think you've already touched on this. That initially, the, the, your, your findings were surprising, the low levels of PTSD. But is that right? Is, was that the unexpected aspect of, right. of the results? It was very unexpected, you know, given the extent of the torture, the extent of the trauma that the populations had all experienced and in fact reported. So it wasn't as if they were hiding any of these uh, terrible experiences they'd been through. And on the basis of theory and on the basis of past studies in other countries and other conflict situations, you'd expect rates of PTSD of maybe 30% in this population and we got a rate of 2.5%. So, you know, there were there were competing explanations for it. It could be a cultural factor, it could be that a language issue that um, perhaps they didn't understand our questions or it could be this factor relating to, you know, the hope generated by independence and the sense of security that had been established. And I think that was truly borne out by our follow-up study which showed the Timorese can certainly develop high rates of disorder under particular conditions. And it, it kind of harks back to issues such as, you know, the Vietnam War and when soldiers returned, they came back as pariahs rather than as heroes. And people have always speculated that it's not just the trauma itself, but the meaning of the trauma and the context in which it happens that really, you know, shapes the mental health response. So that's strongly suggested by findings that actually what happens in society as a whole, uh, whether there's a, a general sense of optimism, security, faith in the future uh, or not, makes a major difference to the population level of these symptoms. So these symptoms are almost like a barometer of the general health of the society as a whole. One can always interpret that initially, perhaps, although there were low rates of PTSD, it almost sounds as though it was latent in that it was it was there. Exactly. But it was it was there, exactly. but but it wasn't coming out. It was like it was almost like having That's HIV, right, exactly. having HIV infection, but not seroconverting. That's right, exactly. And and so these were sensitised. They were certainly sensitised to the trauma, and that uh, when you had a triggering series of events with the later conflict, then it kind of brought it all out again.
which uh, shows that you know social factors can be you know can mitigate and perhaps not entirely heal the traumas of the past but can certainly allow people to uh, manage them better and keep them under control and so on if conditions are appropriate and supportive and clearly the most important uh, thing final thing to, to discuss with you are the implications of these findings what do you think they are in a more general sense of because as you said the very outset here this is this is about planning isn't it for for mental service yes. delivery yes. in countries affected by long-term conflict absolutely and i think you know the struggle that we've all been involved with in working in these environments is a very low resource base for everything but particularly for mental health yeah, currently in east timor there are 16 mental health workers for for the whole country. So when you have very high rates of disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder, the question is how are we going to treat all these people, especially if we're going to try and offer them evidence-based individual therapy? And the answer to that, I think, and it's a partial answer, is they don't all need therapy. You know, those with the severe um, cases certainly need treatment and there's no doubt that there's a need for clinical intervention. I certainly wouldn't argue against that. But, you know, I often say to politicians uh, who say to me, well, you know, we need lots of psychiatrists in this country because people have so much trauma. I say, well, actually the best psychiatrists are yourselves, the politicians, because there are fundamental issues that can help people heal themselves, which is maintaining peace, promoting the economy and overcoming poverty and providing conditions of justice so that people can feel vindicated as a consequence of the traumas they've suffered and feel that they've been recognized and acknowledged and so on. So that there's a lot of the therapy can happen at the societal level. Um, and I think that's an important message. Indeed, Bob. It's a really fascinating paper and uh, great to discuss it with you. I do urge everyone listening to this podcast, do please read the paper. It is, of course, freely available, as all content is in The Lancet Global Health. But in the meantime, Professor Derek Tylove on the line from the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Global Health. Well, thank you very much. And we feel very honoured to have the paper published in, in The Lancet Global Health. We hope it will bring uh, an important message to, to the audience and the public.